Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You are now listening to This Week Explained. Welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana with Carvin as my co-host. Together, we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. But first, let's get right on into what's on the agenda this week. So, Carvin, have at it, buddy. Yeah, we'll do the two big conflicts, so Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas. Uh, and then we're going to go heavy on talk about China because they did a lot this week. Uh, we've got Chinese President Xi who met with uh, leaders in Vietnam. We'll get into the geopolitical implications of that. Uh, yeah, we we keep talking about Taiwan, and that's going to be the catalyst to start the conflict, uh, like a go- global conflict, because the U.S. is going to have to get involved. But recently, there's been a lot going on in the South China Sea with the Philippines. Um. So I want to get into what's going on there, and could the Philippines and not Taiwan be what happens to get the U.S. involved in a conflict with China? So you think China might try to do something in the Philippines? Well, they already are. But if, you know, we'll get into this, but if the Philippine soldier were to die, you know, the Philippines would go to war with China. And and the U.S. has uh, procedures in place that we will defend the Philippines, if that were to happen. Okay. And then we're going to get into this crazy story about a Taiwanese pilot that was approached by the Chinese Communist Party to defect from Taiwan and provide China with U.S. military equipment. <laughs> I oh, yeah, very, I saw this already. <laughs> very interesting story. Yeah, you saw, we've discussed this, and uh, I think it's very interesting. And we're going to get right into that at the end of this episode. All right. Well, what is the latest coming out of Ukraine? Well, it's still a stalemate. Um, that's that's true as of the, our recording today on uh, we record December 14th. Uh, everybody knows that. <laughs> but uh, some figures on the losses on the Russian side have come to light. So a recent report suggests that Russia has incurred substantial losses in the Ukraine war. It's about 315,000 dead uh, dead or injured troops. That's nearly 90% of its initial personnel when oh, wow. uh, in February it launched the invasion. It's had a significant impact on Russia's military capabilities, and it set back its modernization efforts uh, 18 years. That's, inc- wow. that's an incredible timeline. They were able to assign a, a year, amount of years? Yeah, that's, you know, that's through analytical data or through data. You analyze the data and figure out, you know, when Russia well, started their modernization process and, and all that. So, 
Well, either way you slice it, that is a staggering number. So how does this affect Russia's current military strategy? Well, I mean, it's forced Russia to take extraordinary measures to sustain its fighting capacity. Such as? Well, they've declared a partial mobilization of 300,000 personnel. Uh They they have relaxed recruitment standards. Listen, the (laughs) the U.S. is doing this as well, so... Yeah, we, we talk about this in in light of the war like, in Ukraine. Okay. We'll break you down and then build yeah. you back up. We'll, yeah. we'll break you down. It's up to you to build yourself back up. Sometimes <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> That's true. That tangent and that <laughs> okay. personal I, little. You're allowed to have feelings on that. Are you kidding? That's okay. Um, but they're also allowing the enlistment of convicts. And of older civilians, uh, 40 years and, and over, to enlist into the Army. I don't appreciate <laughs> the term older civilians for somebody at 40. I get why, but... Yeah. Because 40 is kind of old to be re-enlisting, I guess. I don't know. I mean, if yeah, you're going like, to be in the battlefield. It's like talking about an NFL player. <laughs> it's like, oh, they're 30. <laughs> Oof. Too old. Don't want that person. Old. Well, you know, there's a lot of, well, there were for a while quarterbacks that were over four. All right, this is going on a tangent. Sorry. Yeah. So, all right, <laughs> let, me get back, let me get back to what I'm talking about. I was about to go down a football hole. Well, if we could get Aaron Rodgers into the U.S. military, I think we could solve a lot of issues. With his superhuman healing yeah. abilities? Yes. Right. That's, what are you doing, Aaron? He's probably going to be like dropping acid. <laughs> <laughs> Meditating in the desert. That's what I'm doing, and it heals me. But anyways, okay, so Russia is adapting to severe manpower shortages, obviously. How about their equipment? Well, um, yeah, that that's another problem that they're having. So we'll talk about one, one piece of equipment. They started the war with uh, 3,100 tanks. Uh, Russia had a, a much more robust um, tank crew. And mm-hmm. they lost 2,200 of them in this war, according to the numbers that we got. Right. They've had to backfill those with the outdated T-62 tanks that they uh, that they created in the 70s. And a lot of their issues is some of the stuff that the U.S. is is having issues with as well, is in that Russia has provided these tanks to countries within Africa, to places like North Korea. So... You have to couple that with the losses that they've had. Um, And right now they're only left with about 1,300 tanks on the battlefield. So they've gone from 3,100 to 1,300. And the shift in equipment really does have implications for the dynamics of this war on the ground. When you were talking about Korea and everything, you're saying they're supplying these countries with some of their other tanks? Yeah, so like the U.S. supplies Finland with F-16s or Sweden with F-16s or okay. M1 Abrams. Part- okay, and that's part of why their numbers are so low. Yeah, that's one part of it. It's one. It's part of the reason why there's a lot of discussion on should the U.S. provide Ukraine with more weapons because our stockpiles are being depleted. And we need to. And we need to kind of focus on ourselves right now. Yeah, let's let's have a self, <laughs> a treat <laughs> yourself kind of twenty twenty four where we focus on ourselves, treat focus ourselves, on ourselves find ourselves, find ourselves, stockpile our have a mental health year. 
<laughs> okay, so uh, the twenty two hundred yeah. though that you were talking about, that figure that was lost in the war specifically. It doesn't right. include yeah, the figures. It doesn't include the figures of tanks that they gave to other countries that they right. outfitted so, other countries with. Okay, right, and that's that's why what I was talking about is like the outdated, like the T sixty two tanks or uh, their okay. like their T nineties. Um, you'll find those on the battlefields in Africa. You'll find it in the Middle East. You know, they were in Afghanistan. It was really interesting, you know, being in Afghanistan and, and driving around and seeing, oh, well, there's a, a Soviet-era tank just sitting there, just waiting, you know. Oh, wow. Well, but you need the munitions and everything like that. But yeah, those all those countries have been outfitted with Soviet-era tanks. And now the, the Russians are kind of scrambling to yeah. re-outfit their own troops. Gotcha. Okay, so also we need to talk about Ukraine. They are obviously facing losses. And how do you think this is impacting the overall balance between the two sides? Well, you're right. Ukraine is facing losses. And, um, you know, you might say, well, you don't talk about the number of losses Ukraine has. Why don't talk about that? But that's because... Kiev treats its losses as a state secret, so we don't have those figures. They're not putting those out there. A state secret? Yeah, it's part of their intelligence. They say it's classified so that why do you think not get an upper hand? Oh, so they can, so, okay. Oh, that does make sense. That does make a lot more sense, because obviously they're not going to say, we lost, we had this many casualties, this many wounded, and then Russia can be like, oh, we can go there, because they have this many casualties and this many wounded. So they're obviously hurting there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes very, sense. It, it, I was, yeah, I was about to make some, make fun of it a little bit. But oh yeah, <laughs> I had to, I had to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, like I said, we we don't have the exact figures. We have estimates. Um. According to the New York Times, the Ukrainian death toll is close to seventy thousand. Um, still, still yeah. quite high. Yes. Now, regardless, both sides. Are experiencing significant casualties and it's at a stalemate and that's why the two sides i say remain at a stalemate and with this stalemate ukraine has recently admitted that the major counteroffensive over the summer pretty much failed yeah which super bummer because it was talked up a lot yeah um, oh it's well, very it's very interesting um it's something we can't get into in this podcast because it would take hours to discuss it i feel like we say that a lot but we're yeah, really they, good at running our mouths, so. <laughs> this is this would be like a four-hour conversation on, you know, how it failed, what the impl- what what happened, what the implications mm-hmm. are, all of that stuff. Um, it's very very interesting. I'm well, sorry for cutting you off on that one. It's okay. That's all right. Um. Anyways, both Ukraine and the U.S. have said that they need to reevaluate the current state of the war. How do you think this? will impact the ongoing negotiations and potential peace talks. So like I said, both the, or like you said, sorry. Yeah, like I play. said, <laughs> credit where credit is due. Yeah, I do that. Actually, I don't, even know what, I don't even know what you were going to say after that. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, yeah, give me credit. Right. No, but you said the, the U.S. and Ukraine recognize the need to change the strategy. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much how they came to light that the counteroffensive failed. Okay. Uh, the U.S. has suggested this hold and build approach to Ukraine. What that means is they want Ukraine to focus on defending and fortifying 
existing territory that they have. Now, it is acknowledged that that's not a long-term solution. That's considering Russia's ability to refill their ranks and rearm. Because they lost 300,000 troops and they can still, you know, still have more troops than Ukraine. Right. Right. But like we have said on this podcast on several occasions, there is no desire for legitimate peace talks on either side until one side is on the cusp of victory. That's going to hold true. And we, I still believe in from, from analyzing, um, and, and I'll put out one of the, one of the think tanks that I like to to review is the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, after going through that, no one is on the cusp of victory right now. And, so, okay. and it's so much so, we're so much at a stalemate that we are still a ways away from that happening, from those peace talks happening. Okay, well, I guess for now, I want to get into a conversation about the U.S. aid to Ukraine, because the country is obviously facing a very difficult winter. I mean, technically, Russia is, too, obviously. Right. But U.S. President Joe Biden had promised American support for Ukraine, but the Republicans have been slow to approve new aid. Yeah, right? that's, that's exactly right. Um, and, and the situation is further complicated by the lack of clarity on whether or not the U.S. is going to continue to, to support Ukraine because they have to approve more aid packages. And to do that, right. they've got to find the money. They're too busy fighting, too. Yeah. Oh, uh, in the U.S., between Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. Yeah. And putting and, hidden spending bills into the aid packages and stuff like that. Yeah. Another thing that uh, we won't discuss here because I that's a long that's, conversation. Ugh. That stuff. Um, Just make that's it what, go towards what it's supposed to go towards. Why do you have to have all these little caveats in there? I'll and, give uh, you $50 billion, but I want to spend <laughs> $6 billion on this. And, you know. And that's what we're seeing right now, right? Because the, the deadlock is over immigration. So Republicans are linking so stupid. the approval of both Ukrainian and Israeli aid to tougher immigration rules. Because that's what they're, that's what they want to focus on is that's what they're based, immigration rules. they're based yeah. voting so when you're when you're talking about politics you've always got and you're like why are they even doing that you have to understand what their base voting demographic is asking them to do but it's two separate things that have one has nothing mm-hmm. to do with the other and it just sucks that people have to struggle while they're doing all this infighting, not getting anything accomplished because they all have separate things that they want to address. They have nothing to do with the main part of the spending bills or the spending packages. Right. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's a strong arm tactic. They, you know, hey, this is what this is what we want, this is what our voting base wants, and you have to put that into this bill to get what you and your voting base want. I it's just part think- of the reason why we can't agree on a bunch of stuff in this country. <sighs> now, the Biden administration has suggested a change in Ukraine's strategy. They said, if you can't get that aid that we're going to give you, continue that hold and build approach that I talked about. Mm-hmm. And then, I, like I said, it's not a long-term solution, but maybe down the road we can find the money. We can agree to some immigration package that gives you the money. And if you do hold and build, then six months down the road, we can give you the aid and you can build up and maybe do another counteroffensive that's more successful. 
Well, it won't be anytime soon since winter is quickly approaching. Yeah. But, okay. So despite calls for clarity on Ukraine's strategy, divisions even within Ukraine persist, raising concerns about national unity and um, the ability to withstand Russian aggression. The situation remains critical, obviously, as Ukraine faces a very harsh winter with possible Russian attacks or, or, or with uncertain prospects for assistance without. Yeah. I mean, with uncertain. Sorry. I was about to say with or without. With uncertain prospects for assistance. And I understand. Yeah, I understand that. Okay. It's important to understand that the situation in Ukraine is complex and multilayered. We keep we keep saying that it's nuanced. There is, it's gray, there's no white, it's not a white and black, white or black kind of thing. Right. Um, there's no easy solution. We can't just say, well, go to the, the negotiating table. That means somebody's going to have to give up something that mm-hmm. historically they have had for, you know, decades. Um, and and then contrary to, to talking heads, the, con- the, the conflict has far-reaching implications for the world. I've heard this a lot from people within the media that this conflict is a Ukraine-Russia conflict and it doesn't affect anybody else. I'm telling you right now, it has far-reaching implications around the world. Europe is very worried about this. I know for a fact Poland is worried about this. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, something has has to happen. We've got to fix this situation. And the fact that there's no easy solution makes that very difficult. And, and so that's why we, as a podcast, we're going to continue to provide updates every week as they become available to keep people informed on what's going on. Well, with no solution in sight, let's move on to that other conflict that doesn't seem to have a solution yeah, currently. That one too. So what is the latest in the war between Israel and Hamas? Well, uh, as I'm sure everyone has seen through traditional and social media, Israel is back to bringing the fight directly to Hamas. That means they're in Gaza. But they're having a lot of issues right now because, uh, well, I'm saying they videos have been released of IDF soldiers being extremely callous and... Yeah. And and listen... Race, those, they're saying racist things and, and Yeah, just, recently... I think today, right? Today there was a video of today or yesterday. IDF soldiers within a mosque that were being uh, completely disrespectful. Well, they were blasting Hanukkah song, traditional Hanukkah songs. That's yeah, it's disrespectful. Like I said, yeah, and and so, listen. I always say listen. I got to stop doing that one. I got to find new words. They are listening. That's why they're here. Yes, but. (laughs) I would caution anyone from singling out individual people or in you know individual units that are doing very terrible things. Um, every every war has soldiers that will not like do. That. Listen, we had Abu Ghraib. I said, listen again, and I got to stop it. Sorry, it's everybody. Okay. No, it's okay. <laughs> it's fine. It's not a big deal. Abu Ghraib. That was terrible. Right. That was a group of of individual soldiers, airmen. That did terrible things. They need to be. There's Guantanamo. Guantanamo had 
very terrible things happen. So, right. yes, within the ranks, you will have individuals who are racist or you will have individuals who will do terrible things. And it needs to be called out and that needs to be fixed on an individual level. At the same time, though, isn't that like part of like soldier conditioning? Like you're kind of trained to see the enemy as not completely human because how else are you going to like right. harm people you know we had this conversation every time we watch band of brothers right oh, that's true. That's because true. it's like if you think that's about true. it that you know, think of of the way we talk about german people today right, right? we're like they're germans they're great i love i love everything about german culture and the food and and things like that but during world war ii we were Krauts. demonized. Yeah, you're Krauts and you're terrible you're and you you don't deserve to exist. And there's that scene in Band of Brothers. Here's the tangent. We are about 20 minutes in and the tangent has started. Tangents have begun. So there's that scene within Band of Brothers where um, where they're taking these German soldiers. Oh, I know. Is this one the cigarette? Yes. Okay. So there's so there's this uh, one American soldier who's from Oregon, and one of the German soldiers is speaking English, and he's kind of like, "Hey, you know, where are you from?" And he says, "Oh, I'm from Oregon." And I, it's, I'm from Oregon. It's it's an incredible scene because it it humanizes mm-hmm. the two people, right? And and they went to you know they went to schools one county over from each other. Yeah, they have a little banter between yeah, each they, other. Yeah, they have a banter, and then what happens? You know, the the lieutenant the comes in, and this lieutenant is known that when he hands cigarettes to the POWs, they get a smoke, and then he kills them. Yeah. And this happens in there. And so that, that kind of humanizes it, and that's where we have this discussion of how... I mean, that's he... not what's happening here. No, that's... No, 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 I'm just saying... With your with your um, comment, which is true, that mm-hmm. as a soldier mm-hmm. from any army, from any army in in any any year, any any historical moment, right. you cannot look at the person across from you and have sympathy for that person. Yeah, that, it's a, that's war is hell. It's unfortunate, but if you do have sympathy for that person. You are going to hesitate, right? And I, I tell the kids all of that this all the time. I say hesitate and die, and that is what would happen, right? You hesitate. Right. You say you humanize that person for a moment. You hesitate, and that person is going to kill you because they're doing the exact same thing, right? This is happening with uh, towards the West and towards the U.S. The U.S. is being demonized right now within China, within Russia. As the enemy. Yeah, right. And we are seen as people who are uncultured and people who need to be dealt with. Animals. Um, animals. It, and yeah. so when you're reading these articles and, and you're trying to understand what's going on on the ground and you go, how could somebody do that to someone else? You mm-hmm. have to identify that that person who's doing it has been told, mm-hmm. has been... Conditioned. Conditioned to see the other person as less than human in order to 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 uh, accomplish what you, what the- yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Accomplish yeah. the mission. Right. You have to accomplish the mission because you know who's more important? 
the person to the right and the left of you. Right. What we call in the Army your battle buddy, and the Air Force call it your wingman. Um, that person is more important than the person in front of you who wants to kill you. Or might not want to kill you. Or might not want to kill you. Yeah. And what's really frustrating, I can, so let, let me tell you personally what I know on how the IDF would feel about this is that what's really frustrating. How do you know personally what the IDF would feel? Because I have dealt with the terrorist organization and bringing the fight to the terrorist organization. There's no uniforms. There's no, uh, there's no military. It's, it's not there were like a country clothing. on country. So you yeah. don't know. If that person in front of you actually hates you or is actually trying to attack you and it's very frustrating and when and we both know you get very frustrated and that you can do some things that you regret in the future. Yeah, I think that's what's happening uh, with Israel. That doesn't mean you stop calling it out or. Yeah, you, it needs to have attention brought to it because needs that's... To have attention. But you also have to understand their mindset in it. And while they're, yeah, being there on the ground, it's completely different than somebody sitting behind a computer screen and reading about what's happening there. I mean, it's not justifiable. And obviously they weren't in some of the, and I don't, in this particular video, they weren't harming anybody. They were just blasting Hanukkah music in a mosque. But that, the disrespect's unnecessary too. Right. And... Also, I mean, that's I think it's also another kind of it's another reason. It's another way for them to keep focus on the mission is disrespecting their holy sites and stuff like that. It's not cool. Wish they would stop doing that. But that's how they're dealing with the traumatic, difficult situation that they are in is by doing stuff like that. But I'm glad it's being called out and I hope they do get, you know, there are repercussions for what they did. We went on a, on a tangent. Yeah. So, uh, okay, we you know, with all of we that, actually saying, yeah, with all of that, what what I wanted to discuss was because right. uh, last week we talked about the seawater. They're the plans uh, mm-hmm. to flood mm-hmm. the tunnels with seawater. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, um, Israel has started to pump water from the Mediterranean Sea into Hamas underground tunnel system in Gaza. Now, you remember last week I was kind of like, these are about three or four different contingency plans. Um, we don't know what they're going to use. Well, they did go through and use the seawater to flood those tunnels. So are they closing off the tunnels before they flood them? Or are they flood them, flooding them and having like IDF soldiers stationed at the exits yeah. to, allow for, to allow for somebody to surrender Yes, so they are they yeah, they're not closing it off. They are positioning troops out there so so that that can happen and and you would say, well, why would they even just kill all of Hamas? Why even try to take somebody? There is intelligence mm-hmm. that can be gained. Yeah. So for me, whenever we would do operations, I was always hopeful that we could get we could get somebody. I would always say hey let's not go to kill we want to go to capture because of the intelligence that you can gain from people and not just that well from my little mushy heart perspective it could also give them a chance to you know change 
Yeah, well, I can tell you from experience that's very difficult. <laughs> I know, I know, but I just, I don't know. You know, I, we've like, had those conversations of how frustrating that can be. What? Dealing what? with people who were captured and... and well, obviously, they're also trained to, to with, and, they're trained to withstand any yeah. sort of thing you throw at them, I guess. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I just get whenever you say you know capture, it just starts making me think about you know the torture or whatever they might right. have inflicted upon them and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, and you would hope that if you know you have a benevolent military, they would not mm. do sort of torture. Mm-hmm. Um, but then but, define torture, right? And yeah, so what you may consider. As torture, I may say, well, that's just an, a different tactic for interrogation. Watching Citizen Kane on repeat, that would be torture. Listening to Shakira. Listening <laughs> on to Shakira repeat. on repeat. Also is that torture, torture or is that a an interrogation tactic? Reading, I'm sorry for all of you people who love Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> but re- like having his books read out loud would be torture for me he's not my favorite but that could be torture that could be for me specifically (laughs) but getting back to the tunnels and and what's going on there uh right now only some of the tunnels are being flooded okay Uh, this is uh, a common tactic because you want to kind of you want to gain intel on what is happening so you you flood the seawater see what they're going to do compare the the tactics effectiveness to maybe other strategies that you might have. Okay. So uh, obviously we know Israel has previously utilized the airstrikes. They've done explosives. They've sent drones and robots over there. Those have not been effective because of multiple reasons. Airstrikes because you kill civilians and then that becomes a PR nightmare. They don't seem to care. Yeah, and that goes back to... we have Western worldview, and this is a Middle Eastern problem. It's a different type of worldview. And so Hamas is, is using think... civilians as human shields right? because they know what the West is going to do. The West is going to highlight deaths of civilians, and that's going to change the perspective. And that's happening right now. There's The perspective is changing a lot worldwide yeah. on what Israel is doing. So it is an effective tactic. Make no mistake, Hamas does not care about, as much as we say Israel may not care about the civilians on the ground, Mm -hmm. uh, and that is evident by what they're doing, Hamas Mm -hmm. has no regard for the civilians in Gaza. Right. They do not care. Their perspective is an entire Middle Eastern perspective. They, because they're an Iranian proxy. So if they can are an Iranian proxy, I don't think I remember you saying that. Yes, yeah. So Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas, and they are they are Iranian proxies, and so this fight is about controlling the entire Middle East. (laughs) Get rid of Israel. Now it's an entire Arab, Islam, Muslim uh, Middle East, and then they can then push that fight into North Africa then from North Africa, you can push it into Europe. Okay. And that's happening. You know, that that's happening through proxies. So neither side, I will say, mm-hmm. Israel, Hamas, is doing much for the civilians on the ground. 
Right. That's the problem I have with both sides. Okay, well, obviously, this brings us to the question of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Excellent segue. Right. This week, uh, the UN presented a ceasefire resolution that was vetoed by the United States. Uh, So before we get into what is happening on the ground in Gaza, can you kind of explain the decision by the U.S. to veto this resolution? Yeah, so in order to explain this, I first have to take what the U.S. has said about the resolution, and then everybody can decide whether you believe what the U.S. said about about that, or if we no. can meet. <laughs> yeah, that's what some, I, yeah. there are probably some that are listening that are going, nope, already don't. Yeah, and it's no. fine. I'm going to listen, though. I'm going to listen. But Maybe I'll change um, my mind. Do we believe that? Or like you're saying, do we need to infer something else completely? Mm-hmm. And that's always my, you know this, that's my initial reaction when yeah. the government puts something forward. I'm like, no, what are they really trying to Yeah, what to are they really, here? yeah, exactly. That's, I always am like, okay, let's read between the lines yeah. here. Yeah, now first, let's let's say Israel is one of the United States' closest allies. Mm-hmm. So the veto is not a surprise. That's not a surprise to me. It's not a surprise to people who actually understand geopolitics. Everybody that's listening here, you all understand it because you're here. Had the U.S. Where they're veto- trying to understand it. Right. Yeah. Or you're, or you're trying to understand it. And, and in that case, I want to explain a little bit. Had the U.S. voted in favor of the resolution, Israel would be completely isolated, right? They're the U.S. is the only country that vetoed it. Mm-hmm. So that means Israel's completely isolated. They have no allies. They're yeah. Fighting a war with zero allies. Uh-huh. There would also be repercussions to the United States because Israel's been consistent in stating they're not going to stop until Hamas is destroyed. So right. a veto, you know, uh, if everyone had approved it, Israel's not stopping. Right. They're just going to stop giving the U.S. intelligence that could help for a future uh-huh. terrorist attack. Okay, I see. Okay, that actually makes sense because I was kind of annoyed that we were the only people to vote no. And didn't England abstain? Yeah, they abstained. And and I want to make it clear, the U.S. vetoed. Yeah, they flat out said no. Yeah, they said this resolution's not even coming up to a vote. That does kind of make sense. Like if like Israel did say, and they've said it multiple times, and I'm sure they'll say it many more times, they are not stopping. So even if it was voted on and it everybody agreed, there was a consensus, They Israel themselves probably wouldn't follow no, along. No, not at all. Yeah, okay. Now, well, that does be, make sense, but it did piss a lot yeah. of people off. Oh, yeah. And now it's the headline, right? Right. The U.S. Yeah. is the only country to veto, and and yeah. this is why we always say you've got to you have to go beyond the headlines to kind of understand that all the time. Because I get I'm still I still get incensed at headlines before I even read the article, and I'm like, <laughs> look at this, look at what this says, and you're like, calm down a little bit. Yeah, we kind of had that conversation recently, right? Yeah, where it was like, you're like, no, but this, and you're like, you just read the first. No, no, Part of well, it. It, wasn't, it wasn't like <laughs> you sent it to me and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Click it and read the whole thing. And then we kind of went line by line. Right. It was like, yeah. oh, well, this happened and this happened. And this is not this is what 
that headline's not telling you. Yeah. Um, now, okay. well, here's what the headline That does make sense. Not, this is what that headline wasn't telling everybody. Okay. So it's a, another great segue to this. Yeah. Is that the United States, that's why I said you have to first take, do you take what the U.S. says about the resolution to heart? Okay. The U.S. says that the resolution was put together hastily and that the concerns that the U.S. had were not considered before the vote. Okay. Okay. Well, I can admit whenever I'm being hasty with my... (laughs) You and the U.N. (laughs) Me and the U.N. are hasty. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, okay. Well, I totally get it now, and it makes sense. So, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, no worries. That, but there was another vote this week to call for a ceasefire, right? Yeah, there was. On top of the one? Okay, so how did that one go? So so that one saw nine other countries join the U.S. to vote against the resolution. Okay. So, okay, but if it was all hasty, like the initial vote for a ceasefire was hasty why did so many countries immediately jump on yes because they just wanted it to end and they didn't look into the resolutions that were put forward or sides of this okay um one is that so let's let's take it from a uk perspective right because they abstained Mm -hmm. and they i i believe they abstained in this second vote so you got nine countries that voted with the u.s but let's take the UK because they abstained. I believe they abstained in both of them. Okay. So what's their issue with it? Well, they're with all of these votes. Their issue is public perception. So from okay. what they're seeing, from what they're saying, with all the protest, these pro-Palestinian protests, mm-hmm. they understand. The UK understands if we vote yes, that is going to to be destructive to our government. We're not yeah. going to hear the end of it. Mm-hmm. Now. So they can't go one way or the other in right. fear of inflaming the high tensions that are already going on in Great Britain. Yeah. And and okay. so why? Well, then why? Because we're having protests here in the U.S. D.C., there's a protest every day. Yeah. On on both sides of the matter. Right. So the why did the U.S. vote yes? And then the U.K. voted no. Well, the U.K. is not they as much of an ally. No, they didn't vote no. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Why did they abstain? Thank you. Yeah. So thank you very much. Yeah, we just don't want to get, you know, confuse anybody. <laughs> right. So why did the U.K. abstain? Because they're not as much of an ally to Israel. Okay. And they understand that the U.S. is going to vote yes to this. They're going to veto this. They have some flexibility. That's that's what's going on. Everything is politics in all of these discussions. Now, there also may be some confusion on why there were two votes, right? Because the U.S. vetoed one. Yeah, and then all of a sudden... And all of a sudden, now 10 countries vote against it. Yeah. So, why why is that? That first round of voting came from the U.N. Security Council. The U.N. Security Council has 15 members. That includes China, France, Russia, the U.K., and the United States as permanent members. We've had this conversation before. You remember, if you're a permanent member, you can veto anything. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't, it, it doesn't come to fruition. And they have a consensus, right? Right. And that's why we've talked about 
so why is Russia and China on this permanent council? Because they can just <laughs> veto anything that they do. Well, right. here's the flip side to it. So can the U.S., the U.K., France. Right. So that's what happened there. Any of the permanent members can veto, and then it kills it. And And so that's that one. The more recent vote, the one you're talking about for this one. Yeah, the one that happened this week. Right. was from the U.N. General Assembly, not the Security oh, Council, the General okay. Assembly. That okay. has 186 members. So more robust. The vote on that one was 153 in favor of a ceasefire, 10 opposed, and then 23 abstentions. Okay, so the General Assembly overwhelmingly voted in favor of a ceasefire. Then why don't we have a ceasefire? Well, the easy answer is it's a war. <laughs> the UN, the United Nations, whatever you feel about them, yeah. they do not get to decide what each of the warring countries do during a war. Okay. That's what the countries decide they can do. Um, and that's much like the conflict in Ukraine. We've had plenty of UN resolutions to end the war in Ukraine, and they're, it, it's not happening because Russia and Ukraine get to decide what happens in the war. Right. Not the UN. Also, the resolution is non-binding, so it's it's like a it's just a vote to show the people within your country which side you're taking, and also to show the other countries in the world what side you're taking. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like it's like we're ta- like we're saying, it carries significant political weight for the countries that vote for or against it, and it publicly what this resolution that UN General Council, the the General Assembly vote showed, is the evolving views on the war around the world. Well, in light of the ongoing developments, let's delve into the current situation on the ground. Following the cessation of the ceasefire, Israel has resumed its offensive in Gaza, citing the need to confront Hamas. This resurgence in military actions has sparked renewed protests against Israel's actions, as anticipated, (laughs) with the return of conflict and heightened media coverage of Gaza. Yeah. Despite global discontent, Israel is, they're continuing their airstrikes on locations identified as Hamas headquarters. And, I mean, I have a couple questions. Can you provide an update on the current status of the conflict? And also, I saw whenever... All of this started up again that they were allowing civilians to go, um, I think, south Gaza. Yeah. But then they started south attacking. South and west. South and west. And they started attacking the areas where they told the civilians yeah. to go, which makes no sense to me. Yeah. And, and none that of it. was a question, I guess. Like, what, what was their thought process? They literally announced here, exit or you can go to these places in Gaza and you will be safe. But then they wound up attacking those same places later on. Yeah, and it's it's stuff that we're just not going to comprehend because we're not on the ground. Uh, usually in that situation, what happens? You tell people, hey, I need you to move to this area. I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm just telling you from my experience when we have mm-hmm. said, hey, you guys need to move out uh, like Sadr City in Iraq. You need to move out of here and go here, and then militants within, um, you know, the the command of Sadr City moved where the civilians were moving. It doesn't justify it, though. Well, th- this is all based within intelligence and and what 
you know, what are we, you know, what's covertly being picked up and what are we understanding on the ground? Everything that's going on the ground is fluid. It's not going to be a, a straight line, right? So then you go, so these individuals, these, so let me take the Sodder City kind of example example that I was talking about. You said, hey, well, we would tell people, hey, get out of Sodder City, go here. Mm-hmm. Militants then, within there would go with the civilians. Right. And we would get intelligence from SIGINT, HUMINT, whatever, that says, hey, those militants that are moving are actually planning an attack on individuals that are coming in from that area. For military pe- personnel that are coming in from that area, we need to actually stop that. But they don't by killing more civilians, though. That's what, like, if they're worried well, about yeah. an attack happening from Hamas and they're like, we've got to stop the attack, and then they blow the whole place up and kill civilians, too, that just... And that's a philosophical discussion to happen. It's uh, no, it's, it's well, not. Well, I'm so what I'm saying is, so here is here's the comment that's received. Okay, is you kill one terrorist, but how many, how much collateral damage is justified to kill a certain, you know, to kill one terrorist? Because if you kill one terrorist and five civilians, you have now created or twenty thousand. Okay, so I'm I'm just I'm talking it. I'm sorry, just, it just single like numbers. Di- I know it feels like you're down like no, no, I'm not. It a I'm not bit. trying to downplay any civilian death. Okay, but from a military standpoint, okay, when you go, so you're thinking okay, after thinking. Yeah, they're definitely thinking from a tactical level. So that's a different conversation to have a tactical versus a strategic conversation. A okay. tactical conversation is you kill one terrorist the collateral damage of five civilians, at least you got rid of that one leader, that one terrorist leader. Uh, It's a tragedy, the other five. This is not Mm. me, my personal thoughts on this. This is what I'm saying from a tactical military standpoint. Okay, so this is, okay. I will rein in my emotional responses (laughs) because you're doing it from a, you know, a military perspective because it was kind of sounding like that was how you were justifying it. Oh, yeah, no, but you and, know me. I, well, you know I, this is not my thoughts. Okay, well, I, I needed you to clarify that because it, the way you were delivering it, it sounded like that you were like, as a former military soldier, A, B, and C, and this is why this happened, and, you know... I, yeah, this is yeah. this is not I'm something... I'm going to rein in my emotional... I'm going to rein in my emotional response and I will just let you speak now. This is coming from like a command level, a tactical level. We This is one high level, so we would call it an, an HVT, a high value target. Mm-hmm. Somebody who is planning and they are engaged to kill a dozen U.S. soldiers. The, the example of the Sodder City example. Mm-hmm. We can kill this one individual... Yes, you're going to kill five more civilians, but at least we, on a tactical level... Have 12 will, soldiers still. We will still have a dozen. We will have 100 soldiers. That unit survives, right? Ugh. That Those are... This is why there is a mental Ugh. health Ugh. tragedy mental health what? that goes on, right? Yeah, Because you have course. commanders who had to do this for 20 years in the United States. You had soldiers who had to do this for 20 years in the yeah. United States. And that I affects mean, you negatively. Yeah. 
but the decision uh, has to be made. Who do you want to protect? But the thing is, is it how many how many people in Hamas did they wind up killing by attacking where they sent civilians? Do you know? Do you have that figure? So no one has that figure because it depends okay. on who they're you not trust. releasing it. Okay. So, so no one actually knows. So when you see an article that says 20,000 civilians have been killed, yeah. you have to understand that those figures in Gaza is coming from the from Gaza. That means it's coming mm-hmm. from Hamas. Okay. So when they say 20,000 killed, they say they consider themselves, all of them, civilians. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are, were 20,000 Hamas fighters Hamas terrorists killed no there's no way that 20,000 Hamas terrorists were killed because they do not have the ability to keep fighting if 20,000 of them were killed but not so you know that civilians were killed well yeah we know the philosophical debate I'm talking about freaking babies all over the place but like I said the the civil the the philosophical debate that Mm -hmm. happens you can't have a philosophical debate when you're in war as a military leader, you just can't because the Can entire you point? what okay. are you talking about? So you say we killed the one high value target. We did kill five more civilians. Gross, we, but okay. We, the me as the leader, I'm not saying me personally, okay. but I'm general oh, so and so. Okay, okay, gotcha. General so and so has said, I will accept that. Actually. Yeah, you know, honestly, if we're talking about what has happened and what I have been involved in, the president of the United States has to accept that the blood of those civilians are on the president of the United States. But he never mentally, sees people. So right, and, and mentally, you can't accept that as a soldier. The hand, the 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 blood is on your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the United States, the president has to accept that. And say that is proper collateral damage to get this person killed, and that is what Israel is is fighting with right Except now. Except that the figures are so much larger; like it's so many civilians compared to the Hamas fighters. That's what yep. I'm getting at. They're and like, oh, collateral damage. It's you know, it's kill one to save a million, or kill five or six to save a million. But they're killing thousands. Of I will also tell you that I would not put Mm -hmm. my faith in the government that in Gaza because I have seen this personally in a place like Yemen yeah where I have said hey we cannot attack this I get this is a high value target I am being targeted personally by Mm -hmm. a vehicle born improvised explosive device what so hey I don't like (laughs) you dropping bombs like this on me so (laughs) So what I'm saying here is... We need to have a conversation, obviously. And we will have this offline. Um, okay. But, uh, and then I'll I'll finish this tangent and we can get on to what the, the IDF is doing. And, okay. And what's happening with them, because they have losses as well. Not sure. as significant as that, but... Obviously, yeah. Um, but we still got to talk about it. So, in, in Yemen, being targeted personally and, I, and identifying a high-value target and having that high value target be put in with different civilians and mm-hmm. i personally have said okay this target we can't do it we have to wait for him to get away from the civilian the civilian population and the right. yemeni government said no we the yemeni military is going to take him out and we don't care 
about the civilian casualties of our own people because this person is trying to kill the president of Yemen. Oh, gross. That's so gross. that's the conversation that Hamas has. Okay. They so say, we don't about, care. They're worried about a very particular subset. Yeah, everybody uh, worries like about themselves. High, right. Okay, well, this whole thing... It's disgusting. And then when we talk about war, it's tough to talk about it. And we do appreciate everybody that sticks with us because it's it's tough. Not an easy. This is not an easy listen at all. But um, I think, you know, some of the questions that you have had is like, well, Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing what's happening to Israelis. Nobody's talking about the amount of deaths of Israelis. And the, Mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is they have a better defense system. The war is happening in Gaza. It's not happening in Israel, mm-hmm. much like Russia, Ukraine, right? The war is happening in Ukraine. There's Ukrainian not civilian Russia. deaths, but there's no Russian deaths because no one's really attacking Moscow. And when it, you do, when they do attack Moscow, that's huge news. But this week did see um, the IDF receive its most significant losses since the start of the war. So in one day of fighting, the IDF lost 10 soldiers. And that was after a coordinated attack by Hamas. So this is what we're going to see moving forward as the IDF moves to execute its mission in more urban areas. Those IDF casualties are going to increase because it's an urban area. It's easy for Hamas to hide and bring the fight to the IDF. And it's one of the main reasons why Israel didn't rush a ground offensive after the October 7 attack and decided to use a shock and awe approach. One... And that shock and awe approach is what led to so many calls for the fighting to stop because it was killing civilians at an astronomically high rate. Yeah. So with a terrible humanitarian crisis in Gaza and now the IDF having their most significant losses, why can't we all agree on a ceasefire? Right. So that seems like an easy question to answer. I mean, Just, they both want two different things, so yeah. I think that's part. They want two completely, completely different things. So, I mean, that's obviously right, and a sticking and, point. And what we continue to say is, we're trying to fix a Middle East crisis through Western ideals and worldviews. Right. A ceasefire is not what we're looking for here. Right. We don't just mm-hmm. want a ceasefire. We want to see right. a lasting peace agreement. Mm-hmm. That's what we want to see for Ukraine. All a ceasefire does is delay. Puts it on hold. It causes it. Right. But just like the Ukraine conflict, both sides have to agree and neither side is going to agree until one side is completely dominating the other. So I want to, to get to your question on agreeing to a ceasefire. Uh, what does each side want? Israel wants the return of all hostages as part of a ceasefire. Hamas is not going to do that. Because if they release all the hostages, Hamas has then lost leverage in this war. Right. Also, Hamas has actually lost accountability of some of the hostages. There's also others who have died while they were being held. Mm-hmm. And they haven't so, released who those people are yet. No, and, right? and we don't know if... So there's two factors to this. We don't know if the, the people that Israel think has died uh-huh. actually died. We don't know if the people that Hamas said has died... Um, because Hamas says every person that Hamas says has died as a hostage in their hands, obviously they're going to blame somebody else. They mm-hmm. blame Israel during yeah. the attacks that Israel did. Right, the hostages were killed. 
But if they return the bodies, that would probably right either confirm or right. <laughs> yeah. Was it a bullet to the back of the head, or was it or was it from an IDF, or was attack? it a building collapse or something like right. that? Okay. Um, the fighting is going to be left to the two sides. This, that does not mean what I'm not saying here is that we should stop highlighting the atrocities on both sides. It's just so hard. I'm going to tell anybody on either side of this. October 7th happened. Yeah. Heads were chopped off of civilians. Yeah. Palestinian civilians have been killed by IDF attacks. Mm -hmm. Those are truths. And if you're on one side or the other and can't accept both of those truths. Right. You need to reevaluate your own worldview. So we're going to keep highlighting that. Yeah, and, and every when time this war is inevitably over, because it is going to end. All wars end. The Knock people on wood. <laughs> I mean, it has to. No, I, I whether know, the I end know. is the complete annihilation of the human civilization, the war right. has ended. Okay, point, sorry, I'm, that's point taken. Got yeah. it. Got it. There's two extremes. We could have complete world peace, or we could have the end of the human population. Race. Yeah. It's, yeah. So now, if, when it's all over, we can then hopefully hold hold all of those accountable who committed grave atrocities towards mm -hmm. the other side. Okay. Well, now that my emotions have calmed down a little bit, <laughs> we still have a lot to get into. We do. We do. Oh my gosh, we really do. <laughs> I didn't realize like how many things we haven't hit yet. We haven't gotten to China, so let's get to China. Yeah. So. While both of these conflicts continue heartbreakingly, uh, we'll obviously continue to talk about them every week until peace happens in whatever form that may be. Hopefully it's, I, I was about to say amicable, but there's no way, like these things yeah. don't end amicably ever. So let's start to talk about another country that could thrust themselves into a conflict because we don't have enough of those going on right now. That country is China. And this week they had a lot of news to cover or they were in a lot of news mm -hmm. that was covered. Um, first, I want to talk about this surprise meeting in Vietnam. What was the goal and why are relations between China and Vietnam so important? Yeah, so the meeting between Xi, the Chinese president, and the leader of Vietnam's ruling Communist Party is is incredibly significant. So the goal here is to for the two countries to discuss strategic issues. Um, they're the Vietnam-China relations or the Sino-Vietnamese relations, international concerns. Uh, they also China wants to try to block the U.S. Uh, from forming alliances within the Indo-Pacific that would be counter to China. And why are relations between China and Vietnam so important? Well, Vietnam practices what's known as bamboo diplomacy. Who came up with that, though? That was came up with the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, that's, that is a... Just say, it, like, it's... You know it, what it sounds like. It I sounds know. racist. It really does. Yeah, but the, it, it was, would be racist if the U.S. It. came up with it. Well I, know, well, I know. That's why I asked, because that term just seemed off. But it was they came up with it. Right. So, um, and and it's a moment. geopolitical term. It, it's understood between Asian countries and 
across the West as well. This isn't something that's like, well, the United States has put their stamp that this is bamboo diplomacy. <laughs> and okay. that also thank means... Thank clarifying that terminolo- term because Thomas said terminology. But thank you for, you know, clarifying that because that was kind of... A, a shock, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, And then understanding that you were shocked by that terminology, you mm-hmm. probably want to know what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And all mm-hmm. it means is... Vietnam wants to maintain good relations with both China and the United States. Hey, let's do it. This is particularly significant given given the ongoing tensions in the South China Sea and then the strategic interests of both China and the United States. Right. And this meeting comes after the upgrade of diplomatic ties between Hanoi and Washington during Mm -hmm. U.S. President Joe Biden's September visit, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So the upgrade was aimed at contain. Well, you know what I talked about mm-hmm. the countering China. It was aimed at containing China's economic influence and then securing crucial materials for high tech manufacturing. Well, speaking of high tech manufacturing, Vietnam is working on a plan to bring in more semiconductor investments, including foundries. Mm-hmm. Um, The U.S. and Vietnam have leveled up their diplomatic relationship, including an agreement that would put CHIPS Act funding towards growing the semiconductor industry in Vietnam. Yeah, and so, you know, that's... um, That wasn't really a question, sorry. No, it it was. Well, it's a statement leading to a question. And then I end it with a right? Right. Right. Um, and, And we all know that's part of the Taiwan conflict, right, is this CHIPS Act funding and it's yeah. the semiconductor industry. And, for and chips. Right. The ch- yeah, for chips. And, for chips. Um, and for the deal to successfully, quote, friendshore U.S. chip making activity, Vietnam needs like many times more chip specialists. Right now they have about 5,000 and that's a quarter of the expected demand in the next five years. That's wild. That figure you're like they don't have a whole lot. They have five thousand, but they want twenty thousand. Yeah. Okay. Well, can you, yeah, I love math. Actually, I hate math. Anyway, <laughs> can you explain what friendshoring is? Because I don't think I've seen that before. Was friendshoring right? So friendshoring is a term used in supply chain management. Uh, it's when a country like the United States decides to work more closely with a, quote, friendly country like Vietnam. We love you, Vietnam. Um, So the U.S. and Vietnam right now have decided to work together to make more semiconductors inside Vietnam. This is like the U.S. sending the job of making semiconductors um, to Vietnam. But for Vietnam to successfully make these semiconductors, they need more people who know how to do it. Like I said, right now, there's only about 5,000 of these. They're going to need a lot more in the next five years. So the fringe shoring, uh, I want to I bring it to like a sports reference. It's like a strategic pass in football. A quarterback has to trust the receiver. We're which... sorry to all of you who don't follow American football. <laughs> well, if, I'm, if you're international, I'm sure you follow soccer. So it's the same concept. It's a pass in soccer to another person you have to trust that person so in this case the u.s needs to trust vietnam 
to work with them to reach that common goal. So in this case, the goal is to make more semiconductors, to not provide those to to China so that the U.S. has it, and right. then ensure that the global trade and manufacturing continues to move smoothly. And so what is China's counter to this besides their little visit together? Right. So far, uh, China has primarily responded to U.S. chip res- restrictions with defensive steps. This is one of those defensive steps. Um, right. They're also taking similar diplomatic approaches that the U.S. is taking. Uh, for instance, China's courting Mexico. It's a country that's somewhat friendly with the United States. And that's a strategic plan um, by both of the countries, the U.S. and China, as we are racing towards a conflict. Uh, they both want to find these shaky alliances and woo those countries to their side. So U.S. wooing Vietnam, which is close to China, to kind of woo a shaky alliance there. And then the, then China woos Mexico. That's a shaky alliance near the United States. So I, I say all of that just to tell everybody what you already know. 2024 is going to be a very interesting year. I don't know why that entire response, that entire response, literally made me think of that Josie Andres Andres um, restaurant in Las Vegas. That's like a it's like a fusion between Chinese food and Mexican food. Yeah, that's part that of we the alliance. To. No, that's not part of the alliances that's that are being courted. Yeah, so but. I'm obviously a little hungry because I was thinking about that restaurant. I can't remember what it's called. Poblano, China Poblano or something? Poblano, China? Yeah, it's something. Uh, I, I know it's, it's Poblano. It's within Poblano. the Cosmopolitan, not a sponsor. Cosmopolitan a sponsor. Hotel, which is a great resort. Yeah, sorry, but I'm sorry. I am, Y'all are lucky that I haven't gone off on more tangents, <laughs> <laughs> but this, this one just made me think about that. Anyways, it's evident. Sorry about that. It's but it is evident that um, a lot is at stake here since we have a bunch of shaky alliances yeah. going on. Um, we will obviously continue to monitor these strategic diplomatic efforts very closely. But staying within the same conversation, let's talk about what is happening with the Philippines. Like what. Um, what has been happening between the Philippines and the Chinese Communist Party, and how could this be the trigger for a near-peer conflict with the United States? Yeah, it's very, very concerning. Um, there's been clashes between um, Chinese and Philippine vessels within the South China Sea, uh, and that's a strategic and resource-rich area. The most serious incident involved the Chinese Coast Guard using water cannons to disable a Philippine boat that was supplying um, a vessel called the Sierra Madre. So is an event like this something that could possibly lead to a larger conflict? It could, uh, but that's if these confrontations lead to injuries or death. Uh, I would say more so if it leads to death. If there's an injury, there could be some mental gymnastics that either country could do to not get into a conflict. But if okay. it leads to death, it could trigger the U.S.-Philippines Mutual Defense Treaty. Uh, that would require the U.S. to come to the defense of the Philippines, potentially leading to a direct conflict with China. Instead of Taiwan? Right. So, okay, what exactly has been the response from the U.S. and China? Like, what are they saying about 
are the water cannons? Well, it's a lot of posturing, and that's always what happens. Is it not? Right. Yeah. So the U.S. has issued statements expressing support for the Philippines, while China has rejected those external interventions. Um, The stance of the Philippines president, that's Ferdinand Marcos Jr., um, he has really been heavy towards calling out China. um, Okay. and, And then there's accusations from China against the Philippines, and that all further complicates the situation. Well, what are those stances that they're holding? Like, what what is it? Right. So the Philippines president has recently taken a tougher stance on China. Uh, He's promised to uphold a key international court ruling against China's claims in the South China Sea, insisting he would not allow one single millimeter of maritime coastal rights what he would, what he says, to be trampled on, oh, by the Chinese Communist Party. He's drawing that hard line, huh? He is, and remember, we've talked about this. The U.S. has, uh, or the Philippines has asked the U.S. to come in militarily, put bases. We're already there militarily, aren't we? Yeah, we are. That I'm saying okay. in the past, they have asked us, and the U.S. Oh, has gone okay. out there. I was confused. I was like, yeah. my uncle, my uncle was there. For- yeah. Ever. I don't even <laughs> I um, live there with my cousin. Now, my the, the president has also expressed that achieving peace in the South China Sea remains what he would say a distant reality amid unresolved territorial disputes. I okay. would agree with him. That's concerning that other nations within the Indo-Pacific feel the same way. Now, on the other hand, we want to bring both sides to this. China has accused the Philippines of dangerous maneuvers. Uh, They've accused them of causing a collision in contested waters in the South China Sea. The Mm -hmm. Chinese Coast Guard said Philippine ships had illegally intruded in its waters, uh, that they needed to take control measures against the Philippine vessels, which would be in accordance with the law. That's what Hence the water cannons and not firearms. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, They also accused a Philippine vessel of deliberately colliding with a Chinese vessel after disregarding multiple stern warnings. China holds the Philippines entirely responsible for all of these incidents. So what do the analysts make of this situation? Because obviously both countries can say whatever they want, but facts are facts. So Right, well, and, and even then it's like you have to take what analysts do you trust, things like that. Now analysts like myself right. see China as the you aggressor. Trust yourself. I trust myself. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I say stuff and I go, hmm, that's why you're here. Because mm-hmm. I can go, well, do I really believe that? Or is that something that was, I, I you know, take that frontal cortex information. Right. Prefrontal spit it out. cortex. Prefrontal right. cortex. Now, there's also the back of the mind, right? The back of the brain where you've actually logically analyzed the situation and gone, oh, the no, this term. is really what's that? I, I don't know. I don't know how the brain works fully, but I don't know. There's, like there's the emotional response and then sort of the logical response. And everybody has that right. within their brain. Right. Um, so for me, I see China as the aggressor. They are testing the limits. They're probing for weaknesses. They want intelligence in order to um, improve their military so that they can control it. Um now, there are calls for the U.S. to escalate its response. That would probably involve... The Philippines? 
from the Philippines, from Taiwan, from allies within the Indo-Pacific, Japan. Like, Don't you know we are helping fund two wars right now? Right. And we can't even get the stuff that we need to get done in our own country done <laughs> yeah, because we're I so know. focused on outside conflicts. So. Well, the Philippines are asking for direct resupply and joint escorts for their uh, their maritime vessels. So they want okay. the, the U.S. to do that. Well, unfortunately, it kind of seems like we are heading towards another conflict that nobody wants. Yeah, none of us want it, right? And No. And then we have, we talked about this, that plan that the U.S. has to deter China from more aggressive actions. That doesn't seem to be working. Um, neither does the high-level meetings between Xi and Biden. Are you talking, like, the plan that U.S. has, are you talking about, like, more... What are those called? Not restrictions. So, what are uh, they called? How do we play sanctions? Them? Sanctions. I knew there was chuns at the end, but I couldn't. Remember. No, I'm, what I'm talking about is increasing Woo! defense spending within the U.S. to deter China oh, because they right, couldn't right, right. win a war with the. Okay, US. I thought we're not working. About sanctions. Okay. Okay. Well, of course it's not. Well, the final topic this week isn't going to make relations any better. No. Because why, this is why we can't have nice things. We just can't get along with anybody. So it was reported that China planned to pay a Taiwanese pilot $15 million to defect and actually steal and land a U.S. helicopter on a Chinese ship, a Chinook, if I remember correctly. Right? You're right, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to need you to break this down and... This entire story needs to be broken down before we can even get into the geopolitical complic—I mean, implications of this complications. You're going to say well, that's a good one. Complication, yeah. implication, implication, complications. Yeah, yeah just conjunction, junction. What's your function? Um, <laughs> we dated ourselves yeah. again. Good yeah, job. Yeah, how old we are? So, world. yeah, you're exactly right. We got to we got to get into what happened before we can actually get into the implications. So. All allegedly, mm-hmm. depending on who you trust, right? Um, the pilot in question was allegedly offered first sixty three hundred fifty five U S dollars per month. For how long? That isn't. I knew you were going to ask that, and I could. Yeah, but find for it. how long? You couldn't find what that. Okay, well, no, but and now now think about that sixty three hundred fifty five dollars per month. I mean, that's not how that's, long. That that's not bad. Not bad. But mm-hmm. are you going to ruin your entire life for... No, for $6,355 a month? No. So he I did that animal... Caviar, baby! The caviar. <laughs> caviar dream. What What was that? Oh, that's another dated statement. What? Like, champagne wishes and caviar dreams? That's it. You got it. Um, oh that's the God. life he wanted to leave, to lead. So yeah. he countered that offer. With a $15 million offer plus of that he $15 million. It? So he yeah. entertained it for a second? Or was he just toying with them? Oh, of course. So uh, when I say countered, anytime you're given an offer, yeah. let's let's think about it in espionage, right? A, uh, an adversarial country comes up to you and says, hey, we're going to pay you $15,000. We would pay you $15,000 to do this. And you'd go, well, there's no freaking way I'm going to do that. But... This guy said, if you pay me $15 million, and first, mm-hmm. I need you to put a million dollars 
of that 15 initially into my bank. Mm-hmm. Then what he wa- what he was going to do is defect to China. So he'd have He was going to do that? Yeah, he was. He was going to defect to China and he was going to deliver that what you said is a CH-47 which is a Chinook helicopter to the People's Liberation Army Navy. So he was going to do it. Okay, well, obviously that's a significant amount of money and vastly different from $6,355 a month. So Yeah, do the math. How much how many months would would like it he take would, to get you? Well, to... his fa- his family would be getting 6,300 his children would be getting yeah. his grandchildren might even be cuz that's not a lot a month comparatively. Yeah. Compared to 15 million, yeah. So what was the plan? So the pilot was supposed to land the Chinook on that PLAN, that People's Liberation Army Navy vessel, in the Taiwan mm-hmm. Strait. He was going to do it in a way that it would avoid interception by Taiwan's Air Force. At that point, China would potentially reverse engineer the aircraft, its avionics, and then possibly get intelligence value because they would understand how the Chinook works and how the U.S. would use it in combat. So it would really help China war game against the United States before going into conflict. Well, first of all, since he was going to do it, and this was his plan, he was going to follow through with this. How did this come to light? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, he would say, unfortunately, I would say, thankfully. You're right. The pilot was arrested in August after there was a tip that he was going to do this. Well, that person person should get fifteen million dollars. Yes, yeah, right. Oh, that's unfortunately that's I, not I know, how that's the not world how works. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, and and to understand how a tip off like that would happen, you have to understand how people are people within the intelligence community are trained to identify certain people who are looking to defect, and this happens all the time, um, yeah. every day. A person within any intelligence community people is approached by it. Especially if people yeah. aren't happy with their governments right now. I did not mean to cut you off. I'm so sorry. No, you were right. And that's what I was going to say. No one's happy, not happy with their government. Right. And so it's it's easy. So you find an easy target. I'm sure this per, this individual was an easy target. Mm-hmm. He was unhappy with... Felt like he was being unfairly... Like he right. probably wasn't where he wanted to be within his job or something. Like used and abused. For a promotion. Yeah. Now, um, the Chinese officials, as this was going on, the Chinese officials had wrote, had assured him safe passage for both him and his family in case of a conflict. Hmm. Now, obviously, this, we talk about intelligence failures, and we don't... Hmm. Intelligence failures are easy to identify because something happens and a tragedy happens. We don't really right. highlight the wins because a lot of times we don't understand it. So this is an intelligence, a public intelligence win for both, the ta- for both Taiwan and the United States. But... If they, if he was promised safe passage during conflicts, how come they didn't? Because he didn't deliver the Chinook, is right. that why? Because okay. before he could actually do it, mm-hmm. it was tipped off, and they arrested him. Okay, well, obviously this seems like a serious breach of security. So, what measures are in place to prevent a similar incident? Well, I mean, Taiwan has a history of Chinese attempts to recruit military officers. And this has prompted measures to protect sensitive information. But 
Um, this case shows that these measures, as always, are not perfect. No measure is going to be perfect. You can't identify what a human is going to do. And there are still concerns about broader motivations for Taiwanese military officials to defect. Because, first of all, not everyone in Taiwan, I do understand that is a low percentage of Taiwanese people and definitely within the Taiwanese military mm-hmm. who want to be reinstituted as uh, Chinese for China. Right. Um, so there is fear of possible Chinese intervention in Taiwan by doing this. So do you think, so was this man some like, a Taiwanese man who was in favor of yeah, joining China. Yeah, and that's, I mean, he had that's to how kind of right, right. And China's not going to go like. Let me put it on a personal level. Ah, uh, here we go. You know, I I was in Poland. I did overt Russian anti-Russian aggression. Russia was not going to approach me, right? And try to to make me defect because if they, you know, they under they knew who I was. They knew you know people that were in my same field and people that were there with me that we were not the person that was going to defect. And we already went to Russia and had our stuff searched. Right. So they knew that we were not, like, I was not going to defect. That's not the target that they're going to go after. Right. They're going to go after what's called soft targets or easy targets. This was a soft target. This was somebody who was Probably disillusioned with the already military. Unha- yeah, already unhappy with the government. And looking for a way out. And the way that they do this, it's not something that the, the Chinese Communist Party just goes, hey, there's here's 100,000 soldiers. Go to all those soldiers and ask them to defect. No, they're going to identify the soft targets and approach those soft targets. And that's how that happens. So what are the implications of this, though? Well, they're far-reaching. Uh, so it shows how far Xi, President Xi, is willing to go to get the upper hand. Yeah, after that visit with Biden, and he pretended right. like we were all buddy-buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, the U- U.S. officials have warned of a potential Chinese invasion by 2027. Invasion where, of Taiwan? Yes. That, that's okay. where I have my prediction. We've talked about that several times. It's been moved, right, 2040, 2030. Now we're doing 2027. I thought you said 2025, though. So, yeah, there's... So, 2025, initially mm-hmm. this year, I started promoting this 2025 plan, which starts mm-hmm. in 2024, but that's kind of gotten moved due to Pushback. geopolitical events, and that's oh, going to okay. continue to happen, okay, and that's why so you, you think... have to listen to this podcast every week, because oh my it God. does change. Yeah, okay. Um, And so, it all of this just adds a layer of tension to the situation. Yeah. Okay, so how does this incident fit into the broader geopolitical, <clears throat> excuse me, context? Well, it's a stark reminder of how close we are to a global conflict. That's why we want to keep talking about this. I don't need this. a stark reminder. I just freaking look at the news. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, the fact that China allegedly tried to entice the Taiwanese pilot to defect with a U.S. military asset shows the intensity of the rival um, and that all the public goodwill that we talked about, all yeah. these meetings, all this stuff, yeah. uh, they're, they're nothing more than a delaying tactic. And mm-hmm. that's until one country decides that they are ready to take advantage of the situation. And that's part of why I don't trust what governments say. <laughs> right. Because, I mean... Not to say we don't yeah. have to, we don't need a government. 
we do huh. need laws and a government. We do need, yeah, people do need laws yeah. and stuff because we are human, <laughs> human <laughs> beings. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying we don't need a government. I'm just saying, like, obviously, you do have, you can't always take what governments say at face value. Yeah. That's, I you mean, know, I United wish, States. I mean, wish. I wish people were that transparent. And not so sneaky, but that's not the case. That's why I wish we would get back to a government for the people and by, by, the, know, by pe- the people for the people, right? Yeah. That's what a government should be doing. That's what I promote. Um, and you can't have leaders. You can't have people in power as long as they are there to secure the people. But the, I don't even know what that sentence was supposed to mean, dear. So, so let me explain it more in depth. Um, a, a government by the people and for the people, a leadership that is going to protect its citizens, that is what I say a government should always do. So mm-hmm. it's not a government needs to pay for all of your stuff, your food and housing and medical. The, yeah. the sole responsibility of a government to its people is to protect its people. Now, we can have the debate on what that means. Does that mean it needs to provide medical assistance? Well, that protects right. a person, right? That's a debate right. we need to have. But the debate should start with there should not be a debate that a government's role is to is to for the safety of its own people yeah safety safety okay okay well thank you Kervin. is that all You're for welcome. this week um yeah i mean <laughs> sorry that, i paused i got a text from our daughter oh <laughs> no worries so i paused and read it really quick sorry so i mean is that <laughs> Is that all for this week? Sorry. Yeah, that's that's it. I was going to be like, oh, let's talk about, because the new trailer for Civil War has come out, for, oh, and yeah. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, you did send me that trailer. We can talk about that real quick if you want to. Like, Only the hardcore, only hardcore people, probably family and just friends have carried on this long. Yeah, and, so. And we, we promised our listeners that we would save our... Yeah. Lathering about our personal lives till the end. So go ahead and talk about Civil War. It's an Alex Garland film, and we love Alex Garland. A24. And, and it's A24, too? Yep. It's produced by A24. Well, he did Ex Machina, which is obviously an amazing film. Yep. He did other films, but I can't think of any right now. But Ex Machina is the one that freaked us out the most. Yep. Ron Swanson is the president. Yeah. Yeah, that's a plus. Jesse Plemons is creepy. So yeah, if you haven't creepy. seen the trailer, go Google it's it. Civil War. It's obviously geared specifically towards the civil strife that we have going yeah. on in our country. Things that we talk about, right? Is like, yeah, where, where are we headed with the terrible discourse that's going on in this country? And this is a yeah, yeah. This is a cautionary tale, I would say. Well, it feels um, so, like we're heading there sometimes. Yeah, so it's not like, oh, let's put this out. Let's glorify what's going on. This is a cautionary yeah. tale. And it's literally Jesse, about Jesse Plemons what? Jesse Plemons is in it. Incredible. You just said that. You said that. Oh, right? I did. Sorry. <laughs> but but I, mean, I mean, just go see the trailer, but it's literally about what a lot of people want right now is for us to basically secede from the union yeah. and form our own little micro countries, kind of, or our own, you know, 
and it obviously leads to strife like yep. most and if, things if you are if you're still listening you're probably a friend of the podcast and mm-hmm. so if you were a military person you're probably wondering this is a here it's going to have military stuff within the movie it's called civil war and you might be concerned that you know they hey it's going to frame the military in a bad way or it's going to have poor military tactics well friend of the podcast we found out last night <laughs> friend of the podcast jeff botsley is in it right and if you haven't listened to his episode of insightful inquiries you really should yeah and we're gonna hopefully try to get him back before this movie comes out to explain right. the process and kind of how he talked the director through some of the military tactics and he's also former military so yeah, special operations he knows, he knows what he's talking about so very excited about that um i know right. Josh and Jacob still listening. A24 is one of their favorite production. That's our middle child. That's one of their favorite production companies is A24. They're like, everything that comes out is wonderful. And they were actually one of the few um, production companies or studios. I don't know if that's a studio or production company or if that's the same thing because I'm not too hip on the... um, Me either. I couldn't tell you. The movie. Yeah, I'm not too hip on the lingo. But um, they were one of the few companies that were able to continue working through the writer strike that just ended. Right. Because that's why this movie was fairly, able. Yeah, cuz they were able to they agreed and they fairly compensated everybody. So they were allowed to continue working throughout this. So good stuff. vibes all around on the production of this movie and the cast. Right. Bad vibes on the story. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of hitting a little close to home with how tense things can get sometimes, you know? Right. So I think April 24th, I think that's the release date. I know we're going to go see it in theaters because we're going to support Friends of the Podcast. Right. And um, you wanted, no, you wanted to support it before that because you sent yep. me the preview like a few days ago and you were like, oh my gosh, Alex Garland has a new movie coming out. And we were so excited. And then it was a happy accident that yeah. we discovered <laughs> That Jeff Bosley was in it, and then it made Kervin even more excited. Yeah. And he's not it. like soldier number five or something like that. No, he is a named character in this. He did have um, some input in the production of this. That's uh, so that's incredible. Well, you got to ask the special for the former special forces guy. He knows right. what he's talking about. So, anyways, is there anything else that you wanted to add this week, darling? No, that's I've just been so excited. I've been telling everybody about this. I movie. know. So, what do you have? Do you have anything? No, okay. I don't think so. I just got to go finish cooking dinner and you know do what I usually do. We got to go see our you. We got to go watch our YouTube friends. Yes, yes. Every Thursday we have a very particular set of YouTube videos that YouTube creators that release videos (laughs) on Thursdays or maybe they're Wednesday nights and we don't see them until Thursday. But after we record this and we have dinner, everything. We go watch our YouTube friends. Yes. And tonight we get to do it while the kids are all at a movie. So it'll be quite better. Yeah, it'll be quiet. So anyways, we wanted to thank all of you for listening to our humble little geopolitical podcast. And we hope that you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, we're serious about this. We want to hear from you guys. 
please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Uh, okay. I know usually this is where I say thank you, Tiana, but that um, because you said that we do want people to reach out, mm-hmm. I did hear from a couple of people that are personal friends and colleagues who said that they wanted to send a message to say that I am a financial genius. And so I was correct last week when I said I was a financial genius, but that was a joke. Because <laughs> last week I said, please reach out. Please tell me that Curvin is a financial genius. Okay, so they're full of crap and yes. just feeding your ego. Okay, cool. Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for feeding his ego. We appreciate that. <laughs> like he doesn't have enough of that going on, but thank I am you. Not. My bank account not- says I am not a financial genius. <laughs> <laughs> You're just middle uh, class, baby. I'm a middle class genius. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do want to say, yeah. Tiana, that it's not lost on me what you do for this podcast. And I want to thank you so very much each week for doing this with me. And until next week, stay safe out there. <laughs> <laughs>